Hello, welcome. It's time for another episode of my podcast on the people behind the AI revolution. Today I invited Andreas Miller, one of the core people behind Scikit-Learn. Naturally, we ended up talking mostly about Scikit-Learn and Andy's journey to open source. This episode was recorded on 18th of April 2017. Enjoy. All right. So, hello, Andy. Um, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Andy is a core contributor to Scikit-Learn, a, the Python package for machine learning. Um, and I'll leave the link in the description in, in case you, you just arrived from Mars and you don't know what Scikit-Learn is. By the way, if you, if you, if you're really a Martian listening to this podcast and, uh, um, Please, please check out Scikit-Learn before you check out American American politics. Um, <laughs> you'll get a fair view of uh, humanity. Anyway, Andy, so how did you um, get involved with Scikit-Learn? Oh, my favorite question. Uh, so, I mean, I, I um, did my PhD in machine learning uh, starting like 2009 or something like that. And uh, I started working on like deep learning stuff and computer vision and uh, I was using Python and I was looking for a machine learning package and scikit-learn seemed to be like the best one even then, like in 2010, I guess. And um, so I started like contributing little bits and pieces, started like with uh, typos and documentation. Then I started uh, working on uh, kernel approximations. And there was a sprint at NIPS 2011, I think. And... Uh, they uh scikit learn had money from google to fly in people uh for sprint and so the uh i didn't really contribute that much pre- uh before then but uh, i asked and they basically they flew me into nips which was great because that meant i could convince my advisor to pay the ticket for nips and i got got to go to nips uh for the first time so that was pretty cool so nips um, nips 2000 was it the one in vancouver uh, 2011, that was in, actually, maybe I also went in 2010. Uh, maybe I also went in 2010. Uh, that was in Vancouver and 2011 was in Granada. All right. So you kind of get started that way. So did you know the people behind the project at that time? Um, well, I met them there to sprint. It's the first time I met any of them. And, um, so basically at that time, the, uh, person that was doing the releases, uh, Fabian Petragoza, uh, he just graduated and left um, in Rayan Paris, where most of the developers were or are. And uh, so they needed a new person to do the releases, and they asked me there if I wanted to do that. And um, for some reason, I said yes. And so I've been very involved in the project ever since. Well, you say for some reason, but I'm sure this was not an easy decision. Um, so what, 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 like drove you towards scikit-learn what was the appeal i mean actually it was a pretty easy decision because i was very excited that someone would uh, want me in this amazing project but uh and the appeal was that it was like just so easy to use i guess other things like at that time there were uh that i was looking at it was like shogun and um pymdp and uh shogun is like everything is c plus plus so you have like uh, data set classes and the stuff doesn't integrate as nicely with like the Python st- uh, stack and PyMDP. I don't know. I didn't really like that much for some reason. I don't remember why. Um, hmm. 
So you like the, the second language is nice, right? So you like the ease of the API yeah. and, and the overall mission they sold you on the mission. Sure, I mean Scikit-Learn it's it's a gem, a pearl among the machine learning libraries, and it's it's still going strong even after all these years. That's that's amazing. So Andy, so what is being a well, did you say you're the release manager? Or what's your official title with Scikit-Learn? Uh, my official title is probably release manager. So maybe together with Olivier Grisel. So I think I did all releases since 013, maybe? Which I think 013 might have been my first one. I recently looked it up. Olivier did one of them uh, since then. Maybe 016? Um, yeah, but so basically, uh, uh, we, we mostly collaborate on uh, the releases, and it's basically just deciding when the release is, what goes into it, and um, then like making sure everything builds, and uh, yeah, uploading all the packages, coordinating with uh, I'm coordinating with Anaconda, so they uh, build the newest release when we upload that, and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that. It's for the, for people from the outside, it kind of seems easy, like you you. You implement some algorithms and there it goes. But actually, the infrastructure around it is critical, and especially for Scikit-Learn, which really works across platforms. And it's such a such a great experience overall. So thanks for that from from myself, and I'm sure from a lot of people listening to this. So you say this is not an official title, obviously. So is this was this your hobby or was this your job? What's your relationship to the project? There's relatively few people that actually work on the project, like paid there's uh, so by now there's actually uh, a couple more because uh, so the some of the creators of the project are um experiment for and um Varocco, and uh, they work at uh, inrea and telecom paris tech in paris and they have a couple of um like grad students mostly working on the project and some of them are paid but these are mostly the only people that are paid for the project so back then i was just it was my hobby, I guess I was slacking off during my PhD. <laughs> and uh, I, I heard that's how all the great um, open source projects got started. That's how uh, IPython got started with Fernando slacking off of his, I think, physics PhD. So how much time did you say this? Uh, well, that was back then, and I'm also curious about now, but back then, how much of your day did Scikit-Learn consume in the beginning? That's that's hard to say because I didn't really keep any hours. But I guess it's... Uh, Maybe two, three hours a day. So okay, so significant portion, let's say, like that's you can do a lot in three yeah. hours. All right. So you are really involved in the in the project. Yeah. yeah. And so at uh, I mean that then uh, after my PhD, I went to Amazon and I was less active. And um, after Amazon, I went to NYU, where I was. Basically, uh, mostly, most spending most of my time working on open source and working on scikit-learn. So I was pretty active again, but I was also writing my books. So I had a little bit less time. Um, I just got a big grant from the Alfred uh, P. Sloan Foundation. And so starting the summer, uh, I mean, during the summer, I'll be working full time on scikit-learn, which I'm very excited about. And then uh, for the next two years, I'll be spending like uh, at least 50% of my time on scikit-learn, which I'm also like really excited about. So now it's like really my job and I get actually paid 
boots I could learn. <laughs> Congratulations. That's that's amazing. It's like your your passion and the thing you're excited about combined with a with a salary. Can't get much better than that. So you kinda you kinda went over a lot of the points I wanted to discuss in more detail. So let's rewind a little bit. Um you said you finished your PhD. What was your PhD about, by the way? Um structured prediction for uh computer vision. So it's like um uh, conditional random fields, like max margin learning for conditional random fields, I guess. Does that mean anything to you? Yes, surprisingly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. All right, right, you're an NLP person. Uh, yeah, well, right? it's all so. it's all vectors underneath, so it's it's not such a big difference between the various subfields. I mean, the thing in computer vision is that uh, if you have, like, undirected graphical models, the, you have a lot of circles and you can't do exact inference and that's kind of where it gets tricky. So so after the PhD, you mentioned that you moved to Amazon. So what? This is quite interesting because that's the path that I see in a lot of people. So after PhD, you, you kind of get poached by one of the big companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, whatever. And uh, how how did that happen for you? I mean, so um, actually I didn't get poached. I, I applied and um, so I was not, so I, I don't really like publishing papers. It's, it's not really, I'm not really good at it and I don't really like it. I think they go hand in hand. And so I didn't think that uh, doing like a postdoc would be a good idea for me. And so uh, I applied at Amazon and uh, there was, uh, they were starting up a new research um, group in Berlin, like Amazon Machine Learning Berlin. And they hired like 15 or something machine learning researchers, many of them like from a PhD or from a postdoc, but there are also like um, as, uh, some more senior researchers there. It was headed by uh, Ralph Herbrich. I'm not sure if you know him. Uh, he did a bunch of stuff on Bayesian models in uh, Microsoft, I guess. If you read um, uh, Bishop's book, he worked on TrueSkill, and so I was excited to work with him. Mm-hmm. So TrueSkill, that was the algorithm behind the, the game, the ranking in games, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know that quite well. We actually used it in one of our commercial projects that was for like ranking people's skills um, for the for recommending experts. And we kind of got inspiration from that research. Interesting, small small world. <laughs> All right, so so you, you worked in Berlin. So you, you come from Germany, right? Yeah, exactly. Berlin specifically? Uh, no. That's, uh, I moved to Berlin for that, I mean, which was not very far. I'm from around Frankfurt, and uh, I did both my, like, I did a master's in math and then a PhD in, in uh, computer science, and I did both of these in Bonn. So you worked at Amazon, so I don't know how much of that is confidential, but it's always interesting to get a little um, behind the curtains of, of what's going on there. So can you tell us something about what you what did you work on? Yeah, I mean, I think I can give like your rough idea what I worked on. So the first thing I worked on was in um, computer vision, uh, which makes sense, I guess, given that that was my PhD. And scikit-learn? And, uh, no. No? <laughs> uh, or, I mean, I was using scikit-learn, actually. But, uh, I mean, um, the, the project was to classify images uh, that are uploaded by users on the marketplace. So Amazon Marketplace is like, we're basically a platform where third pop. Uh, third parties can uh, sell things via Amazon. So lots of the products that you can find on Amazon are not actually sold by Amazon, but by other parties. And uh, there's several models for this. And particularly, I was working on the apparel, so clothing, 
handbags, shoes, uh, uh, to enforce the um, style guides, basically, uh, for the images. So people upload all kinds of images, and they're often not very good quality, and they uh, don't live up to the standards that uh, Amazon wants to set. And so basically, uh, I created a model to automatically classify whether the images like adhere to the uh, Amazon guidelines. Mm, okay, that's, that sounds useful. So it also yeah. fell within your expertise. So did you find that fulfilling, that, that position? <laughs> um, one of the main reasons I was at, uh, uh, I, gave, I went to Amazon was because I wanted to work together with the other researchers and hopefully learn from them. But in that project, I mostly worked together with um, with the business people so I was the machine learning researcher on the team that works a lot with the images, um, like from a non from a non machine learning perspective, and uh, so that didn't really it gave me a lot of insight into how the business worked, and um, uh, into like the process and also in some project management stuff. But uh, I didn't really interact with any machine learning researchers or computer vision researchers. Mm. So the engineering the engineering you felt unfulfilled or like too. Too, too lonely. Yeah, a little bit too lonely, maybe. So, and after that, I worked uh, on a project with actually uh, like the biggest group in Berlin, which was, I think, uh, five or six um, machine learning researchers. And uh, we worked on demand forecasting. So, that's basically trying to figure out for each product how many will be bought in a, in a given country for every day of the year. I mean, so that's obviously a very challenging project. It's a very fine-grained forecast. And obviously, there's very many products on Amazon. So that that, uh, that was more interesting because I was working together with many people. But also, there was like a lot of infrastructure work. Like these type of jobs, I, I know what you're saying. That that's the part where you have to push for the business goals. And then there's the infrastructure to make sure everything actually runs. And then there's the research, which, if I understand correctly, is what you really um, love. That's that's your thing. Um, yeah. So that that's a trade-off. Oh, is that correct? Is that the part that you like the most, the, the actual um, machine learning and uh, not so much yeah, the engineering? I mean, it depends on what part of the engineering. Like I said, I'm, I'm probably a very bad researcher. And uh, You just, so, you just said mean, you don't like publishing papers. You didn't say you were a bad yeah. researcher. Well, okay. So in academia, they're the same. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of sad. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean... I like to solve problems with machine learning and I try to, uh, I like to build machine learning solutions. Actually, what I like most is like tool building, uh, as you can see with my work on scikit-learn, because I feel like, I mean, I like to solve like machine learning problems. And when someone shows me their data, I'm like, love to go and hack and try to figure something out. But uh, I feel like building better tools is sort of more scalable and it's more impactful. Because, uh, I mean, if I solve a problem, I solve one problem. If I build better tools, I solve many problems. And it's especially nice when the tools are open sourced. If, so that's, that's kind of your field um, since you got into Scikit-learn. Yeah. So on the topic of open source, this is, this is also quite interesting. Uh, well, we also maintain some open source software, as you maybe know. Um, yep. But it's, it's always the question is about sustainability. So you say, that Scikit-Learn is actually sponsored by this this ground that you just mentioned, the Sloan Foundation and, and perhaps some other companies. Is is that a good model? I'm just wondering. It's a sort of sponsorship. Did, oh, let me ask you differently. So within the core team of contributors, of which you are the part, 
scikit-learn. Was there ever a talk of taking this to a business level, like offering support services, trainings for scikit-learn, making a business out of it? I think I brought it up at some point and everybody was like, oh no, we don't want to deal with business, um, which is probably the right right choice. Um, so, I mean, you you don't, like if any of us want to spin off a business, uh, I don't think anybody else would resist if they wanted to, but I don't think any of us really want to do that right now. And so um, in terms of support, I said there's uh, maybe now there will get a little bit of in the industry support, but there's not really that much industry support right now. It's mostly uh, grants uh, that are like the people in Paris, Alex and uh, Gael. So they have a bunch of uh, grants that are related to like machine learning and neuroscience and they hire people on them. But uh, nearly all of Scikit-Learn is uh, volunteer work. In particular, one person that's uh, really important, uh, Joel Northman, he's entirely volunteer. And he's probably the most active person on Scikit-Learn in the last like two or three years. And uh, basically most of the contributors are just doing volunteer work. That's yeah, that's that's amazing. It's, but the question of sustainability always comes up because ultimately you, you need to pay your bills, you know, or pay pay your people and so on. So yeah, as long as people are willing to do that, you know, do, do you participate in like Google Summer of Code and these type of programs? Um, we often do. I think we just decided not to participate this year. That's kind of a first in a couple of years. But so, I mean, the problem of sustainability for us is really the more senior developers. So um, there's, it's a very popular project. And so there's a lot of people that want to contribute, but most of the people that want to contribute are not necessarily familiar with machine learning or open source or the internals of the package. Mm-hmm. More headache for you. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily headache, but it's like, there's a lot of code re- to review and there's basically a lot of uh, like mentorship that goes along with reviewing people, other people's code, but it's important to mentor new contributors so that at some point you might have more senior contributors later. Um, many people just start contributing and then they leave again. And so it's very easy for us to get sort of junior uh, contributors. And that's sort of what um, Google Summer of Code also gives you. But it's much harder, I find, to have uh, senior contributors to stick around. Many of them are like uh, worried about or like, I mean, they're very busy with their careers, uh, either mostly in academia, many of them. or uh, people get kids, and so then they don't have as much time. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's why I bring up this topic of sustainability, because it's uh, it's not easy to keep the top people. Um, so when their heart is in it, that's that's nice. But ultimately, the, you, you, you need to find the resources somewhere. So just wondering what, what other projects maybe use uh, as, as their model. I, I don't think many open source projects are really... Uh, good at commercializing or uh, let's say building a model around it to keep keep things going um, predictably yeah that's i'm not sure if that actually works for many projects i mean like in particular if you're sort of so far down the stack from as scikit learn is i'm not sure how many people would like pay for support for scikit learn so, you know, uh, Pandas now gets sponsored in a major way by um, Two Sigma. So Two Sigma hired uh, Wes McKinney, as you might know, and he spends a lot of his time working on Pandas. They're also going to hire another core developer. I'm not sure if that's official yet, but so uh, they'll have two core developers on pay- payroll and they're going to be like 
uh, doing a lot for the project and uh, a lot for the Python ecosystem by doing that. It's an interesting model. The company is hiring star, superstar developers for, I guess, for, for PR purposes and also that will benefit the entire ecosystem at the same time. These are interesting times. I really wonder how this is going to end up, this, this open source, because it's kind of taking over the world, like uh, almost any company. And we're a consulting companies, so we see a lot of companies from the inside, from the big ones to the tiny startups, and pretty much everybody uses open source. Scikit-learn is super popular, obviously. Um, so, and it's uh, it brings so much value, but I think the people behind it, like yourself, don't see enough of that. And I don't think that balance can be maintained long term. It's just uh, just not how nature works. So it will be interesting to see. Well, anyway, okay. So uh, and speaking of open source, um, I'm sure you couldn't miss the, the deep learning wave. Actually, you said you, you work on images and so on. So this is probably very close to you. So I'm just curious as a, as a scikit-learn user, what is what is the future of scikit-learn in this ecosystem that's coming up? You know, the TensorFlow, which has its own framework for everything from debugging to visualizations and so on. What's your plan? And so we are very hesitant to add any uh, deep learning stuff, basically. Now we added an MLP in the last release, but we're probably not going to add anything more. There's uh, a, there's like a bunch of very good frameworks out there. There's like TensorFlow with TFLearn. There's Keras. There's Chainer. There's NXNet. Um, I'm probably forgetting. Uh, there's PyTorch. And uh, it's a very fast-moving field with a lot of excellent people working on it. And, I mean, there's not really any point in us committing more resources to trying to catch up with them, I think. So there's, like, um, both TFLearn and Keras have scikit-learn compatible interfaces, so you can just use the models with scikit-learn tools if you want. Uh, but we're not going to include any of that. I mean, so the, the main... Apart from the reason that there's already great solutions out there that you can use, um, the main reasons for that is we don't want to add GPU support because GPU support makes installation much more complicated. And like I said, the other reason is, I mean, okay, there's maybe two more reasons even, that um, the field is moving very, very quickly and scikit-learn is kind of conservative by now. So we don't like to add and remove a lot of stuff because it creates a, a big maintenance burden. But in deep learning right now, you really need to be stay like on top of it and implementing newest methods to compete. And we don't really want to do that. And yeah. And then finally, there's like often like these deep learning uh, libraries are more like frameworks, as you said. So they are there to build your own custom neural network. And that's not really the way scikit-learn works. Scikit-learn gives you like ready-made models. And so we don't really want to, or we're not really doing the use case of you stitching together your own model that much. Okay, that's that's, that's a good good explanation. Thanks for clarifying. Um, that's that's useful. So, Scikit-Learn, if I understand correctly, it's 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 more conservative and it's more like the glue, like the API that people people love, and you let other libraries plug into Scikit-Learn and, and build maybe on top of that uh, if they wish. Yeah, totally. And we actually we uh, created this uh, organization, Scikit-Learn Contrib which is basically an, it's a collection of packages and uh, that are sort of uh, signed off by us with um, like some particular requirements on compatibility. And people put in their, um, their own packages with particular algorithms and optimization things um, 
in particular use cases that are like scikit-learn compatible and that are uh, well-tested or documented and so that people can use these packages to extend what they want to do with scikit-learn. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I'll put that in the description as well. I think I saw that, but it, this is a really useful tool. Yeah. So check out the description if you're curious about the scikit contrib. So, so Andy, you were working, coming back to Amazon. That was a little detour on uh, sustainability. But uh, So you're not at Amazon anymore. Um, what made you leave? And just to the degree that you're comfortable. Well, I felt that... Um, uh, I could have more impact working on scikit-learn than solving particular problems inside Amazon. Hmm. Was there a path? Was there a path for you to do that? I'm not familiar with the internal workings of Amazon, but is there a path where you can say, "Oh, I'm, I'm gonna work"? Just just like you said that Wes is working inside Two Sigma on, on Pandas. Is there a way that you could have maybe pushed and and have done the same inside Amazon? That would have probably been a long road. Um, so Amazon has been opening up in the last couple of years. They have open source stuff, but they're still like uh, not as active in open source as other companies. They're also traditionally they have not really published any research, so they were like very close. Now, um, because some of the people in my team back there pushed a lot for publishing their machine learning research, Amazon is publishing more, but it. Yeah, Amazon is still sort of more in the process of opening up. Maybe other companies like uh, Google or Facebook are. And so I think it would have been difficult for me to do that inside Amazon. Sure. Well, if there's anyone from Amazon listening to this, um, pay attention. You, you just you just lost a great <laughs> contributor and an amazing uh, asset for your company um, from the PR perspective and visibility and so on. So hopefully um, things will change. All right, so so you decided to leave Amazon. And uh, what did you do afterwards? So after that, I went to um, NYU as a, a research engineer or research scientist was my official title, I guess. Moving continents. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, after my PhD, basically I tried to, uh, and one of the reasons to go to Amazon, I mean, apart from the uh, amazing team there, was uh, I also stay in Germany. But then I, I realized that I'm just much more flexible if I and have much more opportunities if I uh, look in, outside of uh, Germany, in particular in the U.S. And so there was uh, or there is this uh, big three university grant that I was working on, um, the Moore Sloan Data Science Initiative that includes uh, University of Berkeley, uh, NYU and uh, University of Washington, Seattle. And so this is like a big grant on um, data science, uh, reproducibility, open tools, um, and interdisciplinary collaboration on data science projects. And so that was very interesting. And uh, the grant makers were very interested in building better tools for data scientists and, and accessible tools. And so um, there I could work a lot on, yeah, on scikit-learn, on building tools for data scientists. And so I was very excited about that. Amazing. That's that's great. Were you in touch with, with the students in any way? Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, I had like uh, three students working for me. Two of them actually contributed uh, to Scikit-Learn. One of them, uh, uh, Manoj, uh, actually was already a core developer of Scikit-Learn before he came to NYU. So he started, uh, he, he was a Google Summer of Code student, I, I don't know, maybe three, four years ago. Then he did an internship with some of the um, 
core developers in Paris. And then he applied for master in, at NYU. And while he was doing his master at NYU, uh, he was working with me uh, again on scikit-learn. Okay, so a lot of scikit-learn. So I'm just just curious, if you look back over the years, your years with scikit-learn, what do you see as your, um, what are you the most proud of? You know, what, what will Andy put on his tombstone? I <laughs> I, I worked on scikit-learn <laughs> on, on, on this. I don't know. Uh, I guess one of the possibly bigger contributions to the project. So usually I only, always try to do like the annoying stuff that needs to get done because otherwise no one else will do it. So it's a lot of the stuff that I do is like cleanup. Some of it's API. Uh, I think one of the things that was really important to the project that I did was uh, I created a framework to basically test all models for consistency. So um, what, we all, what we call the common tests now, which is... Um, Basically, it programmatically scans the whole library for all the models and then iterates over them and does a, a bunch of sanity tests um, to see if the input and output shapes are uh, good, if they throw the right error messages, and generally if their behavior sort of makes sense. Yeah, again, thanks for that. This is the, the invisible work. People like to talk about deep learning and all the fancy stuff, but the, the ground work behind it, it's, it's usually underappreciated, but I know how difficult that is. So that's, uh, thanks again. Oh, by the way, I, I think I, well, there was this scikit learn decision chart. It was super popular, like a few years. It was making rounds around the internet. Well, you go left and use this algorithm. And do you have enough data? You use the other algorithm. Wasn't that yours? Yeah, yeah, that was mine. <laughs> Well, there you go. That was uh, that was quite a famous thing. So, how did? It, are you still updating the chart? Is it still live? Um, so, I was thinking about doing a second version of my chart, and then I did a book. And I think uh, I was wondering if I should put a new chart in the book, but I decided the book is the new version of the chart. <laughs> it's uh, nice, two hundred pages longer, but uh, I think it's a little bit more in depth. And I think it will help people more. So, yeah, if, if if you don't know what we're talking, if you come from Mars again and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll put that chart in the in the description again. But this book is, that's also quite an interesting uh, undertaking. So I saw um, that book. Can you, can you introduce the book? It's uh, Introduction to Machine Learning with Python. And uh, I mean, it, it's done with um, O'Reilly. And the idea behind this is basically uh, to do a machine learning book that um, is for programmers. So I try to basically avoid all math, uh, which was hard for me. So I'm a pure mathematician by training. But so I feel there was already a lot of good books on machine learning out there that really go in depth into the math. And so, um, yeah, I was trying to do something that is, how do you apply the methods to uh, data? How do you, do you need to do the pre-processing? How do you need to do model selection? If you look in a standard like academic machine learning book, they don't really tell you that much about cross-validation grid search, even though these are like the most important parts. It's also important usually it's like what kind of data to use or what model to use on what data, what are the important parameters to tune, and uh, what kind of pre-processing do you need for different models? And that's, um, yeah. So these are sort of the more practical aspects. And then I show how to do all of this with scikit-learn. Great. So if, if I remember correctly, you published that 2000, was it 16 last year? Yeah, the uh, the print came out in 
guess, October last year. Oh, okay. So it's fairly recent. So what has been the reaction? How How is the book doing? Yeah, it's doing all right. I got uh, some positive reactions. I think, uh, so a friend of mine, uh, Sebastian Rashka, he published a book on machine learning with scikit-learn a little earlier, maybe a year before me. I'm not, even, not entirely sure. But uh, so I think because his was first, he got uh, like a lot more people bought his book than mine. Ah, but, competition. I mean, yeah. I didn't mind like as long as it's helpful for people. The important part for me is that there's sort of uh, that there's good guides out there for beginners to get into it. There's a lot of stuff on the academic level, but there's not so much on the like introductory level. And there are so many people getting into data science and machine learning these days that I think these introductory books are really important. That's that's completely true. So so the book uh, I'm just curious how much I never published a book. How much I can imagine it's a lot of effort. Uh, do you have any estimate how much of your life did that take? How much of my life? So I worked on it for about, uh, let's say, 15 months. Not full time, but like sort of some of the months I spent a lot of time on it. Other months I spent not that much time on it. So it's kind of hard to say. Um, but I'm still, I mean, right now, there's still always uh, errata coming in. There's like, uh, I'm working with the people doing the translations. There's uh, translations into German coming up. There's one already published in Russian. I think the Chinese is just getting published and uh, uh, Korean. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I could help out. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I'm working with the people to do uh, like, to do the translations um, all bit. So that's, there's still work. Uh, with the book and but yeah i mean generally it was a lot of work and you think uh, that i i should have like a bunch of the material but actually putting it in a form that uh makes sense for a book is uh was challenging yeah, like having a linear story because there are so many things that interact like the pre-processing and model selection and the models and like do you explain linear regression first or do you explain overfitting first uh, or did you explain scaling of the data first? Yeah, it's very hard to create sort of a linear story, I feel. Uh -huh. Have you thought about developing some online courses? Because that seems to be a format that a lot of people are, are interested in. Well, this podcast is online, you know. So that's a format a lot of, a lot of people use. Um, how, have you used that yourself? And any thoughts on, you know, plugging scikit-learn into that? I mean, there's already a bunch of video uh, courses online on scikit-learn. I did one, uh, like a very introductory one on supervised learning with uh, DataCamp earlier this year. Um, I mean, I'm doing it together uh, with my friend Hugo. So I'm like just doing uh, some parts of that video. I got approached by a couple of people um, to work on these videos. So I think what I'm probably going to do is I'm teaching a class on applied machine learning at Columbia right now. And I'm probably going to teach that again. And when I teach it again, I'll have it uh, videoed and I'm just going to put that online. That works. Yeah, with uh, we're also working with the DataCamp guys. They get a free plug here, but uh, they have a pretty cool platform. So I think they deserve it. All right. Uh, so you, you, yeah, you, you, you talk about Columbia. So that was NYU. Um, so what, what has been your story uh, since NYU? I mean, I was at NYU for two years, and uh, then, like, last November, I moved to Colombia. So that was not that far a move. Uh, it's half an hour uptown, approximately. 
So right now I'm a lecturer there, but starting the summer, I'll be a research scientist. And um, yeah, as I said, I have this grant to work on scikit-learn. So a lot of my time I will, will be spending on scikit-learn and um, the rest of my time, I'll probably be working with uh, scientists at Columbia, um, working on machine learning problems, like helping them uh, with machine learning problems. It really does sound like scikit-learn is your calling. Like no matter where you move, it's always scikit-learn related. <laughs> well, that's what I want to do. That That's my goal. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, the topic of academia is, is quite interesting to me. And now you have an inside perspective. I mean, I left academia, when was it, 2011 when I finished my PhD. But it's always in our incubator program where we do this mentoring of, of students and so on. The students come and they ask, should I do PhD or not? Should I go into the industry? I'm sure you get that a lot as well. And my my answer has always been kind of, well, if you're curious about stuff, um, you know, st- stick to research. Um, if you want to try out something else and, and see the, let's say, a wider picture in, in some way, try, try the industry. But now I feel like it's changing. Uh, academia, at least the traditional way of doing the academic part of it is, it's getting so much beating left and right. Um, you know, from, from the way publishing works, you, you also mentioned that um, today to all sorts of other things that are not really working great salaries and uh, the motivation of people and the politics behind it. So it's, um, um, my answer is changing. Plus there's these huge massive labs in companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google, which really draw the top talent. So the curious people maybe tend to go there more now. They have the data and they have such massive resources, stuff and, and, and hardware and everything else to throw at problems. So that's quite interesting. So how do you feel about this sort of tension between the world of academia and uh, research in the industry? So it's interesting. So you're saying things are changing in academia. They're changing very slowly. There's a couple of people that are aware that things need to change, but it's mostly the young people. And uh, there's like, but they're still like, two generations between the people that are aware that things need to change and the people that are in charge right now. It's probably going to be like another 20 or 30 years until things actually change. I mean, in a bigger and university picture, this uh, academia versus industry is that doesn't really exist in many of the other fields, right? It's very particular to computer science that, I mean, I guess there is also happens in biology or, but uh, like these really big research labs that's really like very a computer science thing. And now in, right now it's particularly machine learning where um, like really big labs are created or, I mean, I guess Microsoft has been doing that for like over 10 years now, but um, IBM has been doing it for decades. Sure. But, but, but the thing is that the, the most curious minds, they, they're not, the academia is no longer seen as, as the place to be. If you want to be creative, you know, I had Tomasz Mikolov on the podcast like two, two episodes ago. And for him, it's, it's, it sounded like it's quite similar. He has a lot of freedom, has the same kind of freedom he did in academia. But the pressure on publications is different and he can, you know, the, the resources at his disposal are different. So it's just, um, I see this shift, um, happening. So I'm just curious since you're involved with this, you know, you've been involved for, for years now. Um, and with open source as well, which plays into it to some degree. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure 
academia is losing out right now, but I don't think there's enough happening to change it. So um, it's going to be hard to have to to keep the top talent. But I mean, there there so there are some things. So well, one thing is the pipeline is also a little bit broken since there's like usually there's a lot more people doing like postdocs and trying to get into the academic track than there's actual tenure track positions. So um, I mean, that's also a problem. So I guess uh, it kind of makes sense that industry is trying to suck up these people that couldn't even get a job in academia because there's not that many jobs there. But on the other hand, it's very hard for um, universities to to hire the top people. But let me ask you uh, this way. So you're talking to Andy um, 10 years ago, a young younger Andy. Um, would you advise yourself to do the PhD? Oh, yeah. That was definitely uh, the best career decision I've ever made. Uh, but... And uh, partially for the PhD, but even more so because it got me involved into Scikit-Learn. And like, that is, uh, that's what my career is built on now, right? So I wouldn't have gotten the position at uh, NYU or Columbia without my involvement in uh, the open source world. And so, and uh, these were both two both great positions. And I mean, and I got to write a book. And uh, if I went into, um, so, like industry where I had much less freedom than I probably wouldn't have uh, slacked off so much and spent so much time on open source. And so I would be in a completely different place now. Also, like before I did my PhD, I was a pure mathematician. So if I started working after like my master's in math, I would probably now be at some insurance company or some bank. Okay, yeah, the, the the path of our destinies. It's hard to tell what the alternative would have been. So, Andy, so so I want to talk a little bit about your move to to the U.S. because I assume that's a fairly fundamental change moving from Berlin or or Bonn or Germany to to New York, East Coast. How did you find the transition? I mean, it wasn't that tricky for me. So Berlin and New York are quite similar in uh, many ways, but I guess sort of. Uh, things that are different are like uh, the political landscape, the healthcare system, the infrastructure, and I still keep complaining about the U.S. Uh, any chance I get, because uh, there there's very little things in the U.S. that are better than in Germany, and uh, it doesn't sound like it's it's that similar after all. Or what is similar actually? If everything's so different. I mean, like the the city, you can see um, like uh, New York and. Uh, Berlin are both like these giant urban sprawls and there's like this um, gentrification by neighborhood going on. So you can see that uh, every couple of years, a new ba- uh, neighborhood becomes hip. Then the uh, prices go up and then you get the Whole Foods there and then all the hipsters move there. And then uh, sort of the, other, the people that used to live there can't afford to live there anymore. And everything becomes nice restaurants and like organic food markets. And then it goes to the next neighborhood. So th- that's happening in both cities. And you can see, and they both have like sort of this uh, kind of grungy past where there's like these dive bars and the graffiti and uh, I don't know. And also like art scene um yeah, that's 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 fairly prominent in Berlin. I lived there around when was that 2011 thing. It was really a, an interesting city. So a lot of art, like you say, a lot of stuff happening in the streets. And uh, so you're saying New York is like that for you as well, yeah? Yeah, but also, but then again, the artists get 
pushed out by the people like the gentrification also pu- uh, like pushes out the artists and uh, i guess in both cities now also the tech workers come in new york hasn't really traditionally been like a tech city and neither has berlin but uh, now like a lot of tech is moving into both cities and uh, contributing to the raising rent and uh, it gets very packed and everything gets more expensive okay so it sounds like a that's good and bad to <laughs> to go with new york so is there any other place that that you i don't know let's say you get this this grant and you can work on scikit-learn um to your content uh would you move somewhere else or is new york the place for you now no i really like new york and uh so i definitely want i also like berlin um if i had had the opportunity to stay in berlin a little bit longer i would but now i have a lot of friends and network in new york and uh i really enjoy the city so um uh yeah i'll probably try to stay here for the foreseeable future Mm-hmm. Do you have your family there? Uh I mean I'm single and my uh my parents and sister live in Germany. Yeah, yeah I meant more like spouse or children or okay. I don't have kids. Yeah. All right, great. So so any plans so for the future? So you will be working on this grant and working on Psychic Learn. So can you give us a little, I don't know, sneak peek? Well, what what is Andy's um let's say midterm plan now? I guess uh, the midterm plan is I want better support for categorical variables. I want better integration with pandas i want easier visualization and easier model introspection and better support for feature names so that's sort of that's one of the things hmm. now i feel like i want to talk about all of them but we're kind of running out of time especially the model introspection that's something that we need pretty much every single time we use scikit-learn or uh, in our projects but maybe another time uh, <laughs> i don't think we have time for that now so andy any any shout outs uh, anything you would like to say to you know fans of scikit learn or potential contributors or your students colleagues yeah you should all come contribute it's very easy to get started so come contribute to scikit learn or like any other open source project like scikit learn gets a lot of press these days but things like NumPy and Matplotlib and Pandas uh, don't get that much press. I mean, Pandas a little bit now, but they also all really need support. And uh, it's surprising to me how little support Matplotlib and NumPy get, given how essential they are to the uh, whole ecosystem. So maybe also think about contributing there. Yeah, it's not that surprising to me. You know, Django, that, that, that poster child for Python's web frameworks, it's like the num. I think it's the number one package, probably super, super popular. And they have to beg for contributions as well. So again, that's what we discussed with the sustainability. Like people using and 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 people um, paying back, not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. All right. So listen up, everybody. Um, go check out Scikit-Learn and uh, help out. Uh, a lot of stuff and the kind people there. I know they're the people that are really nice and, and helpful. Uh, I've had a quite a few touching points as well uh, with scikit-learn over the past so um, don't be afraid and come and help out all right Andy, thanks very much um yeah thanks again for having me yeah the hour went by in a flash um thanks again and uh have a great day you too that's it for today thanks for tuning in i'm learning more every time i do this i really appreciate your feedback so i can make this a more enjoyable listening experience for you guys 
feel free to comment or subscribe at rare-technologies.com slash rrp. Thanks.